Yeah, on. Listen, I want to tell you a little, just a quick little story. What happened to me today? So I have this identical twin brother, right? That I do a podcast with. We talk about music. He's a cool guy. You'd like him. He sounds like an ass. And he reaches out to me today on the day we we're going to record early, earlier today. And, you know, he's, he's not much of a planner. This brother of mine, he's like, he's sort of a cross between a procrastinator and a um sort of delayed organizer planner type guy right and so he reaches out to me earlier and he says uh he says to me he says i'm not sure if you picked the right album tonight did you think about maybe trying to get the feeling or even now or you know did you did you make did you think about maybe something different and uh and so we had a little, con- you know, conversation. We decided I was going to stick with what was originally picked, but I'll tell you something, Nub. The pressure's on now. Pressure's really on now for me to deliver because, you know, I picked the album initially, and then I had to sort of, uh, you know, fight for it earlier today with my co-host who uh, was having uh, second thoughts. So, uh, do you have any advice for me on how to? handled now this pressure-filled situation that I find myself in? or You know, it's, it's March, so I'm thinking about March madness. And I think the reality is you just got to step up and hit a big shot. You know, it's, your, <laughs> your team needs you. It's late in the game. Uh, you've made some game plan decisions that you can't go back and change. You know, when you're in the fourth quarter, you can't go back and, and redo what the first three quarters have done. Or, or yeah. in college basketball, sec- late in the second half. So you're going to have to make plays. You know, that's what this comes down to make plays. That's a good point. It's a good point. I mean, it is the time period where gamers are made and, and, and legends are made right with making big plays. And, um, speaking of legends, let me, let me throw this one out to you. Shifting back from sports to uh, music, you know, what if I told you that you could make a legend, truly legendary, half a century long musical career, jump started by an album coming off of a pretty disappointing debut record. And it was led by a song that you really, really, really didn't want to record. In fact, the boss basically had to force you to do it. Would you consider that an unlikely rise to musical legend status? A little bit of an unlikely story there, eh? I would say unconventional, but it's kind of like, 
can I use another March Madness <laughs> comparison? Is that I don't see why not. Are you gonna are you gonna say one shining moment or no, no, but that would be good. Maybe we should do a podcast on one shining moment, you know, the song. Maybe we should do a vocal performance of one shining moment. Oh man, I think mm. that might be in the works. Mm. I like it, but mm. you know, we we were <laughs> we were talking right before we clicked record here uh about our respective teams that we root for. You're the Kansas Jayhawks. I'm the Ohio State Buckeyes, both of our alma maters. And I made the statement supporting your Kansas Jayhawks that talent rises to the occasion. You know, talent in the end is what really matters when you get into uh, any situation that requires performance. It's really about talent in the end. You can have good luck, bad luck, hard work, not hard work. Things go your way. Things don't go your way. But in the end, talent usually succeeds. And I think that what you described is certainly unconventional. There's no doubt about it. But our artist tonight is just that talented and was just that talented that, sure, it was a unique road to get where he got. But talent pushes you through. And this was a time, too, different time in music, less watered down talent, more uh, needles in haystacks less quantity, but maybe higher quality. Right. And, and, and so talent wasn't just spread all over the place when it came to music in the early 1970s, it was a more unique thing. It was a more skill-based thing. And, you know, Barry, are we just going to go first name tonight? Can we, is that, I mean, we're on first name basis with the man. Oh, I, I, I think that's fine. Barry's a good example of against whatever odds were going to be there. His talent was going to, you know, power through. And I think that's what you saw. Tonight's artist uh, was quoted as saying when he was talking about his early career saying, I just knew I was good. And it was my mission to go out and show the world. I was as good as I thought I was. So with talent and maybe a little bit of confidence gets you far in this life, doesn't it? Well, I'm going to explain to you how tonight's record which has a two next to it, technically came before the album that has a one next to it. So two came before one. But before I explain that to you, let's take this thing round and round. Nubs. What musical delights in the long play format have been making you happy lately? What do you got? An album that continues to make me happy and technically have not chosen this yet for round and round, but going to right now. And that is the new Jason Beeler album songs for the apocalypse. Wow. This thing is just, it's his career album. There's just no doubt about it. And Jason Beeler has been part of some amazing projects, most notably Saigon Kick and, you know, a lot of good solo work. But this record just puts all of his ability and all of his connections and all of his vision together. And I'm thoroughly enjoying it top to bottom to you. I don't know how you feel about it, but I, I just think it's exceptional. Yeah, it's great. It's great. And, and you know, I've, I've been a Jason Beeler fan for a very long time and was all through the owl stretching stuff in the Houston. We have a problem stuff. And even, even the super trans Atlantic stuff was okay. 
but uh, it's really nice to see him, um, you know, create a, a an output like this as an album. Now he's been putting out music as a solo artist for many, many years, but he's been doing it in EP format and track by track format through Bandcamp. But to you know, release an album, he put it out on vinyl, he put it out on CD. You know, it's a so yeah, I'm enjoying it as well. Love it. The second would be the band Mets. This is a sort of punkish rock group that's on sub pop records their latest album atlas vending from 2020 so this is one of the albums that actually did come out in 2020 that was intended to come out in 2020 i've never seen mets live but really enjoy that group kind of raw powerful loud you know kind of brash rock music very very cool stuff and then lastly would be the album chinese wall produced by phil collins from philip bailey of course of earth wind and fire yeah. Which features the hit single Easy Lover, but she's a kind of girl you dream of. Dream of baby deep. But I forgot it. <laughs> oh, never got it. And we then Phil got yeah. The yeah, yeah, comes in all pissed off. I love it. There's a little bit of connection. I mean, what would a duet with Philip Bailey and Michael McDonald sound like? <laughs> Just a lot of. Who should have put a shoe to? You kind of got your theme of a demon. Who should have put a shoe How long can we go on doing that? I mean, I think if, if, if I mean, let us know, you know, our wonderful audience here. If you want Nubs and I to do that for an hour and a half, we actually will if you're interested. So just let us know. Until our voices give out, that would be the, that'd be the real finish line of that bit. I think mine just dead. So. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, all right. Well, that's what, that's my three. Uh, what is round and round for you? Very good. Well, I've got uh, a little Steely Dan uh, records. This is a uh, can't buy a thrill. So uh, obviously with a couple of great tracks on there and, you know, he's got to give nubs props when I drop Steely Dan, cause I probably wouldn't be as uh, into them if it weren't for him. And, and his patience with me as I thought Steely Dan was stupid, dumb, old man music until about 15 years ago when I realized that Nubs had this one right. So Can't Buy a Thrill, great record. The R.E.M. record, Green, um, which I think is a good work. I think it's a nice, those guys were always interesting at each album having its own identity. I like a lot of the stuff they did on Green. And then I'm going to go in a little bit of a rap direction with Lyrics Born. His record later that day, really one of my favorite rap albums of all time, frankly, uh, came out 20 years ago, 15 years ago, I think, maybe. But uh, lyrics born, good stuff. See, I'm going to do a quick uh, final cut for R.E.M. Green. And I'm just going to tell you, I recently placed that in the for sale bin, legitimately. I had a vinyl copy of it (laughs) and uh, I sold it on eBay. Oh, like it, literally, like literally in the, first like sale actually wow. like put it in the for sale bin and sold it. Okay. I've, I've been trying to do a little downsizing, you know, I, I really needed it. <laughs> really? Yeah. And green <laughs> on vinyl, that was late eighties. And so the pressing that I had was kind of rare and I listened to green and yeah, it, it, that it, it, I don't know. I'm, you've always been much more into REM, but there's only a couple REM albums I like and only a couple that I kept. So what led to the downsizing? I mean, I, I can't, I can't think of what would have led to it besides the 
44,000 albums that you have in your uh, basement, in your shelves. Well, besides that, what was it? Or was it mm-hmm. just the 44,000 thing? I just can't afford it. In the yeah. words of Jimmy, <laughs> in, of Jimmy Dugan. No, it's storage. Storage. Yeah. You well, 44,000 is a lot. I have an entire room devoted to my collection and storage became an issue. So that, that, <laughs> that shows you the illness that I have guilty as charged. Well, you know, you and I are kind of collector types you know, with the various things, right? So, well, let me explain what I meant before round and round tonight's album, Manilow two, obviously is his second record. It succeeded. What was a pretty disappointing debut from Barry? a self-titled record, Barry Manilow. And part of what kind of repackaged uh, this beginning of Barry Manilow's recording career was the arrival of Clive Davis, who came in and took over for Bell Records and kind of reworked and restructured things and relaunched it as Arista. And uh, obviously, Clive Davis went on to have a pretty decent career, I would say as a record executive, but Barry Manilow too came out and was so successful, truly put this wonderful artist on the map. And they actually went back and repackaged the debut as Barry Manilow one. So two was so successful. They went back and actually added a one to the debut to kind of make it Barry's First two albums out of the gate. And actually, actually the success of two really helped one because then Could It Be Magic sort of emerged, which was off the first record. And before you knew it, he used his second record to really boost his first and he was ready to roll. Hey, T, uh, it was my understanding uh, that there would be no math (laughs) tonight. Sorry about that. Yeah. I don't know how much you love math. There are a lot of numbers being flied around here. I'll tell you something. I, I know you don't love math nubs, but. One thing I know you do love, and we have this in common, is being a fan of I think we do need to just say that, you know, what's amazing to me is how many people you find out really love Barry Manilow. And oh, yeah. I don't know that there's a shame in it, but it's not something that people explicitly promote. But for example, you know, I, I, our, our good friend Gene from the middle-aged men podcasts who he loves our podcast. He listens to it regular. And he asked me what's on the docket for the next couple episodes today. And I said, Oh, we got this yes thing. And then Barry Manilow. And immediately he texted back and he said, ships, one of my favorite songs. And then said Copa and you know, Mandy or what like, mm, but he yeah. literally said ships, which is not like the most mainstream Barry right. song, right? One of his favorite songs. And it just goes to show you the reach that Barry Manilow has on so many. And so I think there's going to be a lot of people that see this and think, oh, I'm, I'm kind of intrigued by that because actually deep down, I really like Barry, you know, because it, it, he's really hard not to like. It's really hard to like be proud of it, you know? Well, it, it, it is going to be great to talk about him because we are Fanilos. We are truly, truly loyal Barry fans. There's no question. And I think you're right. I think they're, you know, you don't sell 85 million records unless a couple people are, you know, a couple people dig you. And I think that's pretty evident. Let me ask you this. Who is a more unlikely 
Fanalo out of these three. Let me give you three choices, okay? The first choice is Nubs and Tea, okay? The second is Frank Sinatra, who really wasn't a fan of anybody, like ever. And the third is Bob Dylan. What would you say? See, I am going to go with Bob Dylan on that one. <laughs> well, I mean, it just seems like the obvious answer to me. And I think, you know, you, you know, you're pretty good at musical folklore. I think you have an idea where I'm going with this one, but basically well, both had really interesting Barry moments and Frank Sinatra's was, he was walking out of a performance early. This is very early in Barry's career. This is early seventies and famously quoted to a, there was a journalist close by and Frank Sinatra kind of leaned into the journalist and sort of pointed back in the direction of where Barry was on stage and said, he's next, which is fairly moderate praise, I would say. And what a Frank Sinatra thing to say too. It's like, it's like knighting him, you know, like tapping his shoulder with the sword, you know, totally. And then (laughs) the Bob Dylan one is pretty amazing. This was later. This was like in the eighties. I believe like kind of late, late eighties, mid mid late eighties. And they were at a party and Bob Dylan, who apparently was like as antisocial as anybody and didn't like gatherings and parties and hobnobbing. I mean, have you, Nubs, have you ever watched the uh, documentary about we are the world? Which was, yeah, 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 which was kind of around this time. I mean, Bob Dylan just like, didn't want to talk to anybody. He didn't want to be with, I mean, you know, it was, so to think that, he was at a, he was at an event and Barry Manilow was there. Bob Dylan like shot across the room, went over and shook Barry Manilow's hand and said, in these exact words, he said, don't stop what you're doing, man. We're all inspired by you. Now, I don't care who you are or what Dylan albums and songs you are a fan of or aren't a fan. If, if Bob Dylan went out of his way to come up and say that to you, wouldn't you like pass out i mean <laughs> maybe dylan thought barry was frank sinatra the whole thing you know is, is this it's kind of a yeah yeah <laughs> you never know you never know what bob dylan may have been thinking yeah I, I i think that's a really incredible story and uh if it's true which let's hope it is it just shows you barry's reach you know it supports what we said earlier that this is an artist that's had an impact on way way more people than you could ever imagine and that's what makes diving into this, uh, into tonight's album fun. Well, hey, what do you say we get into Barry's reach? And let's do so with those nerdy deets. Dunder cheap. You want some dirty deets? Yeah. You want some dirty deets? Barry Manilow 2 was released on October 1st, 1974. It really was the album that made Barry Manilow. Uh, it wasn't his debut. His debut didn't do particularly well. It was this. It was led by a couple of pretty strong, timeless singles. Uh, it's 10 tracks. Uh, the album consists of three cover songs. And I found this pretty interesting, Nub, because you saw less and less of this as Barry's career went on. He wrote or co wrote the remaining seven songs. So basically, other than three covers, um, he contributed toward direct composition for all the others. 
And as time went on, you you started to see more songwriter contributions and Barry often co-wrote, but you know, there were a lot of songs that were uh, being penned by either some professional songwriters who had a surefire hit if Barry sang it. Um, later on, you got into some pretty prestigious, you know, songwriters. When you look at um, some of the hit makers of the 70s and 80s and um, and they just knew that with Barry's voice, not just voice and not just performance, but often the arrangements, because there were off, there were times where someone else would write a song for him, but he would come up with a even better arrangement for it, or he'd slow it down or he'd speed it up. Barry was kind of good like that. But I think one of the things that's really interesting about Barry Manilow too, was that he really was still a primary songwriter at this time. And that's, you know, I, we started by talking about that. This might not be the album that I would choose to do Barry, but one of the things I love about your choice is that aspect. I mean, it really does give you a glimpse into Barry's songwriting that you really don't get later in his career. As the commercial success increases, his lone songwriting credits very much decrease. And so it is an interesting glimpse into him as an early songwriter. Yeah, you're starting to come around. Ah, <laughs> well, I'll tell around. you what, but we'll also find out maybe in a couple of ways why he did need some songwriting help <laughs> as things would go on, you know? Oh, fair point. But listen, because, listen, because you came around a little bit on this, buddy, I'm going to play a little game with you. I set up a little game for us tonight. Is that, is that okay? Yes. You yes. want to play a game? I like games. I like games. Okay. Well, here's the game. The game is called Did Barry Write It? And Nubs, you're the contestant. And I'm the host. So, I mean, should we get a little, should we get a little, ga- a little game show music going or? I think so. Well, let's see. I get a little. Is that good? And now, here on episode 37 of Two Twins in an Album. We play the game starring contestant Nubs. Did Barry write it? Here's your host, the other idiot who co-hosts this podcast, T. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> good, good, good crowd noise. Good crowd noise. All right. Well, let's do it. You ready? I'm going to name the song. I got 10 of them. Okay. So we'll see how you do are we saying, did Barry write it solo or did he have a hand in writing? Did Barry have a hand in writing? it? Okay. Um, what do you think would be a good score here? Let's set a, let's set an objective. So for your average music listener, a good score would probably be anything five or above. Okay. For how about me, for you? How about for, how about for dweebs like you? What exactly. Would you say? For, for like a total nerd and fan like me, I would say. If I can get seven or above, I'll be happy. Ooh, so below seven, you'll be disappointed, huh? Yes. Okay, I like this. I like this. Okay, let's start it off. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right, let me see if maybe I can find a little, like... <laughs> Is that very, good? Very intense, yes. Okay, all right, you ready? I'm ready. Okay, here we go. Did Barry write it? Song number one. You ready? I'm ready. Song number one. Trying to get the feeling. Did Barry write it? Yes. Is that your final answer? 
Yes. The answer is no. You are 0 for 1. Uh-oh. Bad start. Okay. That's okay. It was just your first one. You got nine more. Okay. In your quest to get to seven. Okay. You feeling okay? Yeah. Yeah, I'm doing okay. 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 Song number two. This one's for you. Did Barry write it? Yes. Yes is correct. You are one for two. Okay. Let's refocus. Let's refocus. Song number three. Weekend in New England. Did Barry write it? No. No is correct. You are two for three. Song number four. Let's keep it going. Let's keep it going. No commercial breaks. Song number four. Looks like we made it. Did Barry write it? Man, so I'm, I'm judging this one purely on the sound and composition of it. Hustle no. up. Let's go. No. You have a time limit now. I don't want any Google, any secret Google searching going on over secret, there. Secret, no. Okay? These need to be quick answers. Hand check. Hand check. No. No is correct. Three out of four. Number five. No cheating. You cheating over there? Okay. Number five. Daybreak. Did Barry write it? Yes. Yes is correct. You're four out of five, and now I really think you're cheating. <laughs> Look, hand check. I will keep my hands up the whole time except for hitting my mute button on it. Song number six. Song number six. Yes. Song number six. You ready? You're not cheating. You don't have a Wikipedia page pulled up or something, do you? Do you realize how many searches it would take to find these songs? Which album they're on? <laughs> this All right. Not possible. Copacabana. Did Barry write it? Yes. Yes is correct. You're five out of six. You are well on your way to your goal of seven, unless you really blow it here at the end. I will admit to that was that one was a total guess. Yeah, that one okay. I had no clue going in. All right. All right. Here we go. You got three more. Okay. Or wait, four more. Four more. Sorry, being a bad host. Four more. Song number seven. Ready to take a chance. Did Barry write it? No. No is correct. You are six was, of seven. That was for a film, if I remember right. Foul play. Starring right. Goldie Hawn and Chevy Chase. That was sort of the beginning of the end for Chevy, wasn't it? it was where things started going wrong? No, it was his first movie, and it wasn't. T- it was fairly successful. I mean, Goldie Hawn. I mean, how can you? Right. Well, true. But no, that that was actually he left SNL to go film uh, Foul Play. Oh, it was before Fletch and every. Oh, oh yeah, it was okay. before then, all that. Then never mind. Yeah. yeah, it was his first movie. Good thing it's not a Chevy Chase game show. I would have already been over one. And all the other SNL cast was super jealous because number one, he got to go shoot a movie. And number two, he got to go shoot a movie with Goldie Hawn. So yeah, exactly. Got that going for him. Okay. Number eight. Somewhere down the road, did Barry write it? I love that song. Yes. 
Is that your final answer? Because the answer's no. You finally got one wrong. Ooh, so, okay. Let's see. You are now six of eight. You need one more to get to your goal of seven. How you feeling? Feeling good? Feeling nervous? I feel a little nervous. I do. Is it is it because the music? The music is making me feel incredibly serious and intense. It's making me feel a little nauseous. <laughs> but we're almost done, and then I can turn it off. Yes. Okay. Barry wrote the theme song. Yes. Oh, I got that one wrong. <laughs> song number nine. The aforementioned ships did Barry write it. No. No is correct. That puts you at seven. You have your final question, which will exceed the over-under that you set at seven. Are you ready? Remember, Vegas is usually right, and Vegas set it at over at seven. At the well, over could under, be a push. So. Could be a push. We should have set it at six and a half, probably. Well, we did say seven or above. I'd be happy. So, so yeah, let's. So, so it's yeah. technically seven and a hook. So this is game point. Is, <laughs> okay. All right, here we go. Question ten. Bermuda Triangle. <laughs> oh, you go real obscure on the last one. Did Barry write? Bermuda Triangle. Which is off the Barry album, the one where there's a rather unappetizing picture of him <laughs> with an open shirt on the cover, like sort of airbrushed, if I remember right. Let me just give Nubs credit because him saying rather unappetizing picture on the cover is a deep, wonderful, obscure Fernwood Tonight reference. Well done, Nubs. Now give us your answer. Thank you. Bermuda, Bermuda Triangle, I'm going to say yes. Now, why would you say that? What well, were you thinking? Do you want to phone a friend? Do you want to <laughs> use, your, use your lifeline? So that is not a Barry album that I listen to frequently. I know it's later in his career, and it's an album that didn't do very well. And so in the song was like a, a hit. Uh, a single that wasn't a hit. Okay, that's enough explanation. You win. You got it. Oh, I got the answer it. is yes, he did write Bermuda Triangle. All right, let's turn this damn music off. Jeez. Man, making me crazy. So I had a tiebreaker. You want the tiebreaker in case you needed it? Yeah, let's hear the tiebreaker. Okay. I'm your man. Ooh, a song I like off the off an album that I really like. Great album. I'm going to say yes to I'm your man. Okay, you're for sure cheating. This is no. ridiculous. No, yes, I'm not. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. I, yes, you are. How would I have... I, right, I had no correct. time to look that up. All right. All right. Well, good job. You nailed the game. I think you cheated, but you nailed the game. Now I got to tell here's how I, here's how I was eight of 10. I'm just going to be totally honest with you. It, of course I wasn't cheating. I would never had time to look those up, mm. but here I'll tell you why T this, this, this game is under protest. Well, if you're going to protest, protest something, it's my sheer nerdiness because mm. yeah, it's almost, I, I, it's almost bad that you did this. I mean, that's you should be a little bit ashamed of yourself. I'll tell you why. Because when I first, and this was fairly recent, when I first realized and discovered that Barry didn't write all of his songs that make the whole world sing, I actually became really quite disappointed in that. And it didn't necessarily like stop me from pursuing my fanaloism, but it kind of hurt me that like Barry didn't pen all of these because I always saw him as 
you know, a singer songwriter with the emphasis on the songwriter writing piece. And so once I found that out, I actually went back and did quite a bit of, you know, research might be a little heavy, but I was, I was looking up most of his songs to see, did he write it? Did he not write it? And some of the things on your list are songs that I really love and was disappointed. Weekend New, New England's a great example. I and mean, I was disappointed to figure out that he actually didn't write that song. Still love it. But that one, you know, so it was kind of a, a journey of knowledge to go back and look all, the, look all this up. And as you know, I forget everything in my life except for any facts about music. So these things stick in my head, uh, even though I can't remember what I had for dinner last night. Well, you did a hell of a job on the Did Barry Write It game. And I think that, you know, part of the fun of doing that is for tonight's album, the answer is yes, other than the three covers. Now, one of those covers was fairly important, and we will get to it. Barry utilized longtime producer Ron Dante for this. He produced Barry's first seven albums. Obviously, you know, helped him a lot with arrangements and was very involved with the project musically. And definitely has a signature sound, Ron Dante. You know, when he stopped working with Ron Dante, the sound became much more slick and polished. It almost has that wall of sound-ish sort of thing. What stands out to me is the drum sound. And I know there's a laundry list of musicians that worked with Barry that you probably won't go through. But one that always stood out to me is Lee Gerst, his drummer, who I think only played on a couple of the songs on Barry Manilow 2 but became his full-time drummer years later and a very distinct drum sound uh, on these albums that kind of reflects a Motown-ish production, kind of a wall of sound sort of thing. So Ron Dante, I think, you know, deserves a lot of credit for just the signature sound that uh, Barry developed in the early 70s. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of people know the story, you know, I mean, uh, obviously Bette Midler had a lot to do with the rise of Barry Manilow. Uh, he accompanied her on the piano in the New York City bathhouses, which is a kind of a, a famous story of uh, Barry and Bette Midler's uh, roots as they came up through the Manhattan, uh, I guess, music and other scenes. And actually, when Bette Midler got to the point where she started to tour, instead of going out on his own, Barry kind of made a deal with her and said, Hey, I'll be your musical director. I'll go on tour with you. I will accompany you. I'll take care of the band and the arrangements and all that good stuff. All I ask is that you let me open your second act. So basically after the intermission and play a few of my own cuts because I'm trying to promote, you know, my solo album. And, uh, and Bette Midler said, of course, well worth it for me to do that. So where he really cut his teeth and those uh, that are true fanalos know this through the VSM or the very strange medley, which appears on the classic must have absolute staple of any collection, Barry Manilow live, which is a collection of a lot of the commercial jingles that Barry made famous. So these include the, uh, Stridex jingle and the. Uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken jingle and McDonald's and, you know, I'm stuck on Band-Aids and which ones am I missing? Nothing. Didn't he write, did he write Like a Good Neighbor, State Farm is State There? State Farm is There, he did. Yeah. He did Dr. Pepper. I mean, some things that like still, you know, he's still getting royalties on this stuff, right? After all these years. Now they've modernized a few of his versions, but some of the greatest jingles in, you know, national commercial history uh, written by Barry Manilow. And some of the greatest musicians in the world are jingle writers. Do you realize how hard it is to compose something that 
can get some sort of message or feel or tone across in 15 seconds. Yeah, he was, it was funny. He said that he had no idea what he's what he was doing, and the first jingle they asked him to write, he gave them something that was like two and a half minutes long, and and they're like, you know, this has to be like 28 seconds, yeah. right? <laughs> so um, you only have to do a little bit of research on him to understand that this is a driven performer. This is a guy who does not like to sit still. This is guy a guy. This is a guy that does not like to go more than half a day without playing his piano. I mean, this is, this is a real student of the game here and a guy who just like eats, sleeps and breathes music and truly loved what he did and truly loved the talent that he had and loved working his ass off to bring it to life. And Barry Manilow is a great story of that. So Nobs, I'm kind of waiting for this one. This will be a beauty. And one that we could probably go on for a while, but we'll keep it as tight as we can here on the Wonder Stories. All right, Fanalo nubs, lay it on us. How? Uh, what? Are, what's your recollection of uh, of how you became a very fanatic, just like your twin brother. How'd that happen? Well, see, I, I, I think our wonder stories are going to complement each other very well. And maybe we can help each other fill in some of the blanks, should there be any blanks. But one thing that's inarguable is that you and I, and, and really anybody else out there that develops this sort of maniacal love for music, it, it has to come from some sort of support from your parents. And we've made lots of references on the podcast to our mom and, you know, she took us to Woodstock 94 and always was, you know, really involved in our musical lives and supported our bands and things like that. That was kind of one side, but who we haven't really mentioned and who deserves a lot of credit for our musical development is our dad. You know, we, we moved in with our dad when we were 12 years old and that summer, he must've driven us to Pine Knob Music Theater like 25 times. And the next summer it was even more. And, you know, he'd sit up in the VIP lounge and work while we would see some of the most legendary shows that one could see during that era. And he did this for us time and time again. And he, and he bought us a ton of instruments and let us make tons of noise in his house, you know, round the clock and was, was really, you know, was really very supportive of that part of our lives. So both of our parents deserve a lot of credit for the way that they helped us to find this unique inspiration. But the one thing that our dad did too was develop this love for Barry Manilow because he wasn't like a a man of super wide taste. Like that's not his thing musically. He kind of likes what he likes. And it's like the Neil Diamond sort of, you know, that kind of genre, like, you know, more adult contemporary type of singers. Then it went into this country direction during his yeah. later years. You know, I mean, I don't even, I don't even want to acknowledge that it's controversial. It is, <laughs> but he like seemingly for a lot of his life had this very real appreciation and true fandom for Barry Manilow. I mean, it was it was his favorite artist by far. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and there were maybe moments when we were younger where we didn't totally get it, but then you, maybe even the older you get, you start to listen to more Barry and you're like, wow, this stuff is really, really good. So clearly there's something about Barry that connected 
with our dad. And therefore we would hear it constantly. You know, he had the eight tracks in his car when it was eight tracks and he had the cassettes in his car when it was cassettes. And I remember his first few compact discs when that was new technology were all Barry Manilow greatest hits and albums and things like that. And so, and he used to just play Barry constantly, you know, he he would sing Barry in the shower. I remember, you know, and so it was very influential. I made it, I made it through the rain was always his shower go-to. Yeah, was, totally. You'd totally. hear the, you'd hear like the water running and then you'd just hear the, we dreamers ever we and seeking me. You know, it's like, he's in there rocking out. Totally. Me. Totally. So it was very influential. And so no doubt there's a nostalgia aspect to it. But like I said, there's also just a real love of the music. There really is. But our dad deserves all the credit for this one. And uh, very glad that, you know, we had two parents who both supported us musically in two very different ways in very different eras. But uh, in, in T I'm convinced, you know, we have kind of a modern concert attendee record in our minds, you know, 1992 is kind of where that clock sets when we saw Bruce Springsteen and Def Leppard and, you know, yeah. all these bands in the same year. But I'm convinced that like our first concert back before that was Barry Manilow at Pine Knob. I, yeah. I remember being very, very young and going to that show and some very vague recollections of it. But I, I think it was actually our first show. So I, that that's, you know, so it all points back to, uh, to our dad and, and with, with great, you know, uh, thankfulness and gratuity that he was able to, to morph us into little fanalos almost from the start. So <laughs> what, what, what's your wonder story about Barry? And- oh, I mean, very similar, you know, very similar in that, uh, and you're right. You know, we've talked about our mom a lot and she, you know, on a, on a sort of a different side in a different spectrum really was influential for us and appreciating music and playing music and those type of things. But, you know, as teenagers, to your point, we were you know, living with our dad and, and, you know, you were learning the drums, which wasn't always pretty, but you know, uh, he and all of us dealt with it and we'd go down there and we'd, you know, jam our asses off and make all kinds of noise. And, and, um, and, you know, when it was time to work, you worked. And when it was time to, you know, put the instruments away, you put them away, but man, did he grin and bear a lot of us, you know, just learning down there, enjoying bringing friends over, playing starting bands and breaking up bands and you know learning cover songs and throwing parties and having concerts down in the basement. I mean, you know, if it weren't for, you know, our dad really realizing that this was something that was very important to us and that we loved to do to pass the time, um, we certainly wouldn't have the appreciation that we have. So we were very lucky to have, you know, two parents that both in very different ways and in different directions uh, led to a lot of our musicality. And yeah, it has but- to be said too, I'm glad you brought up the drumming thing because, you know, our dad is the OG drummer. I mean, it, the only <laughs> yeah. reason why I was able to sit behind a drum set at 11 was because he was a drummer growing up and our, our stepmom, who at the time wasn't our stepmom, but she was good, soon going to be our stepmom, bought him for Christmas or his birthday, a set of Ludwig drums. And I don't think he would have ever envisioned that we would have ended up playing them much more than he did. And before you knew it, you know, much to maybe his chagrin, his drums became much more ours than his. Oh yeah. Uh, He'd still go down there every once in a while and 
you know, kind of shows who the boss was, but uh play wipeout. I think that was the yeah. song you knew, actually. Total white man's underbite too while he played. <laughs> yeah, he had a great drummer face. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> but uh there was, you know, that none of that happens without him having some musical roots. And it's not the first thing one might think of when they think of our dad, but it was there, you know, his appreciation for music. He liked going to see performances. He liked high quality musicianship and going to shows. And and of course his kind of background playing the drums was something that became a thing later in life and, and really transferred over to us. Yeah. I have, I, there are only a few album covers sleeves, as you like to say it, nub that I have down here in my studio. Um, and one of them that I do have on display is Barry Manilow Live. So that's always going to be a special record, that double LP live performance. It's an incredible act, incredible set, incredible performance by Barry. And that that's one of probably the best live albums ever made and an absolute must have. So I'm actually looking at that right now as we record this. But you brought up one other thing, which was the concert at Pine Knob. And one of the things I'll, I think I'll always remember about Barry, because we were about maybe six when we went and saw him. I think it was about around that age. Five Super young. Yeah, that sounds right. But whatever it was, we were very young. Yeah, we were very young. And I remember it was, it was really hot. It was like a June or July night out at Pine Knob. And it was just one of those like muggy, warm Michigan days. And I remember Barry was on stage and he was wiping sweat off of his forehead. And he, and he made a, some kind of joke where he said the word shit. He was like, you know, shit, I'm dying up here or something. And everybody laughed. And I was like, Barry Manilow just swore. <laughs> it's like, like that was awesome. I mean, I already loved him, but I actually think hearing him curse at age five, which you just didn't, even at that age, you knew uh, that Barry Manilow swearing was going to be legendary. I mean, like how cool is that? You know, it'd be, it'd be even funny now. I'm sure when he plays in Vegas, which he does now at age 77, you know, he probably still drops a drops a few curse words but i remember hearing barry manilow swear on stage using the s word um i thought was very funny and i liked him even more even at my ripe young age of five dub good work on the wonder stories what do you say we dive into this thing take a track by track are you ready let's put the needle on the record All right. Well, things start off because, uh, again, you know, Barry uh, wrote or co-wrote every single song on this besides the three covers and the opener. It's a nice little up-tempo number. Barry kind of comes out jamming here on I Want to Be Somebody's Baby. Barry coming out hot here. What do you think of track one, Nub? It's kind of got the New York City rhythm vibe. You know, that's the other album where it kind of started off with a bit of a jammer, you know, but Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I I really always appreciate what Barry does rhythmically on his more upbeat songs. And a lot of it is the, 
the guitar work, the guitar became a rhythm instrument for Barry more than a melodic instrument. And that was something early on that was kind of interesting to me because, you know, when you're a kid in the eighties and nineties, the guitar is a melodic instrument, but for him, it was just a lot of dead notes, a lot of, you know, strumming and and rhythmic patterns and, and almost more like a disco approach to playing the guitar. So that stands out. The other thing too, the underrated part of Barry's sound is like the congas and a lot of the hand percussion that's going on on his upbeat songs, you know, think about New York city rhythm and this and some of the other songs that, yeah, Yeah. Copacabana for sure. Those congas and some of the bongo stuff and, you know, a lot of that hand percussion is, is part of the sound. And so it's almost like predating disco in a way, you know, this is 1974. Disco was not a thing yet. And even dance music was, you know, in its very, very early stages. But you kind of get that vibe here in, in the, the, the production that Ron Dante had and some of the just the sound elements would suggest kind of a coming disco sound. So, yeah, I think it's a it's it's kind of a, you know, toe tapping opener, especially for a Barry album. So what do you think of it? I love it. I mean, I think, I think you're right. It's a good point on sort of pre-disco. Um, and you do get a lot of those instrumentation elements working well here. Barry always had a great band. You mentioned it earlier when you talked about, um, when you talked about Lee Gerst, who, who really shows up on that live album I mentioned, by the way, he, he was able to always, um, put together a nice collection of musicians that produce kind of a consistent sound form over time. And obviously, you know, the production had a lot to do with that. I really feel like, you know, this second record, I mean, you, you heard a lot of good stuff in the first, but I feel like Ron Dante really dialed in on sort of the fullness and the instrumentation approach that was going to be best for Barry's songs, whether they were up-tempo, mid-tempo, or, or certainly as we went in more of the ballad direction. And this one's a bit more mid-tempo. And, um, you know, Barry collaborated with Hal David on this, obviously an extremely famous lyricist who worked with uh, Burt Bacharach and Dionne Warwick and, you know, wrote some pretty clever, famous lyrics for a lot of artists. And he uh, tried to do so for Barry here on uh, a great track to Early Morning Strangers. So part of the process was often, you know, Barry would come up with the music and usually would come up with a vocal melody. And, you know, it was almost like an Elton John-esque thing. He just wasn't much of a lyrics guy. Now, he wrote them sometimes. And and there's a track on this record coming up where, you know, he wrote music and lyrics. So, I mean, he was able to do it. But, you know, oftentimes what he was doing is putting together the piece and then sort of telling the lyricist, here's maybe what I'm looking for. You know, and this is another good example of that where, you know, a very accomplished lyricist like Hal David basically took the song, took kind of what gave Barry the, the proper feeling from a story standpoint and put together this interesting kind of saga about, and there's a little bit of a theme on this record of relationships that sort of grow old and sort of, you know, reach their later stages and some of the challenges of those things you, you do hear a lot of those stories weaving in and out. It almost seems like that was an idea that, that Barry, even at a pretty young age sort of resonated with, because this was the type of guy where, 
you know, he was very reluctant to perform something if he didn't feel it. And usually that had to do with either the intense musicality or the story, you know, and, and if all those things weren't working together, Barry wasn't terribly interested. He's mentioned nubs that he really liked the collaboration with Hal David on this track too. What do you think? So I I've always enjoyed the aspect of Barry Manilow and Elton John and others artists who really want to focus on the music. I think it makes for better music, frankly, you know, the fact that Elton John had Bernie Taupin and never really had to think too much about lyrics. It also meant that Elton didn't get super into like, Oh, I need to say this or say that. I mean, he really just wanted to create great music and be an amazing performer. Same with Barry, you know? And I think that when you can stay that focused on one element of your craft, you can become really, really, really exceptional at that element. And so I think this shows that, you know, Barry's really focused on the music and the sound and the composition and the things that he had spent years and years preparing for. And he can bring in somebody to either take his lyrical ideas and enhance them or just write the lyrics themselves. So in this one, I think it, it results in good things. Again, I like that kind of pipe organ sound. I, I think it's pipe organ, whatever it is, it's some sort of vintage, you know, keyboard. It's kind of got that high end going and, and just get a nice groove. The whole thing's got a really, really nice groove. And that's, again, one of the underrated parts about Barry's music is for the most part, it had groove, even if the slower songs tended to still have something deep within the rhythmic patterns of it, that was uh, something you could easily enjoy. So yeah, I I like what's going on here. I think it starts with a nice one, two punch in, in both of the two opening tracks. Well, I mentioned this from the onset, but uh, I imagine that the dialogue on this one went something like this. Barry, oh, I really don't want to do that. No, thanks. And Clive Davis said, I really think you should do this, Barry. And Barry said, I don't think so, Clive. I'm not feeling it. I'm just not feeling it. And I'm the type of artist where if I'm not feeling it, I don't want to do it. And Clive Davis said, I really think you should do this, Barry. And Barry said, I don't know, Clive. Are you sure? And Clive said, Barry you're doing this song. And Barry, <laughs> yeah. And Clive, this will be good for your career. To do this song. <laughs> and Barry proceeded to arrange this song in his own style using a little formulaic approach that I'm sure we'll touch on a little bit nub and ended up recording certainly the most important and probably the most famous and probably the most timeless of all of the timeless Manilow classics with track three, Mandy. So Barry takes this song that originally had been, you know, kind of more of an up-tempo piece, you know, it almost sounded like a little bit of a, a, almost kind of a Motown type sound to it and decided that, you know, he liked the melody. Um, he, he kind of liked the lyrics, but that this thing needed to be slowed down. Now, many people know the original title in the original performance of this song was called Brandy. And actually, I think I have a little, a little piece of it here. 
So you can hear kind of the way this was performed originally. So you can hear it's called Brandy. It's a bit more up-tempo. Um, certainly a lot more kind of different layers and different things going on there. And this was a couple years prior. So the real reason why they changed from Brandy to Mandy was that Brandy, You're a Fine Girl by Looking Glass had become a huge hit in between the two songs. And they decided that they wanted to, to pivot the song to Mandy to differentiate it a little bit from that big hit by Looking Glass. Uh, you know, I, I think one of the things this really shows, in addition to sort of this Manilow formula idea, is Barry had a real gift for coming up with arrangements, rearrangements, and in this case, you know, covers uh, that he really knew how to make his own. And and while he wrote some songs and didn't write some songs, kind of to your earlier point in the episode as we played the Did Barry Write It game, you know. One of the things that you can really hang your hat on as far as a gift that Barry had was being able to arrange something, utilizing his approach in his voice, in his style. And if he felt it, boy, did he perform the hell out of it. And he sure did with this one. It's a beautiful song, Nub. You know, he did something similar with Could It Be Magic? I don't know if you've ever heard it, but Could It Be Magic has an early version. It was under the name Featherbed. It, it appears on Barry's box set. That's where I remember hearing it. Which actually is Barry, but he's doing this like almost 70s pop version of Could It Be Magic? It was uh, with Tony Orlando. Tony Orlando actually wrote that song. So that, that, yeah. was, the, that was the Featherbed project was Barry and Tony, basically. And then he took it and then he made it a Manilow song with the slowed down tempo and the dramatic build. And when we talk about the formula, that's really what we're getting into here. I mean, Mandy is the first example. Not only is it a pretty much perfect song, perfectly performed, perfectly written. But it's the first and most important example of this Mandalow formula, which of course involves a beginning with Barry and piano. Some strings eventually enter. The thing builds and builds and builds and builds. And then you've got a large chorus. And then you've got what, what's the magic ingredient at the end, T? What always happens? The key change, baby. That's right. The key change. <laughs> and then outro usually with strings, you know, with high strings doing something that complements either the main melody or the solo or whatever happened mm -hmm. earlier in the song. So, I mean, that's the formula. And how many times did he run this playbook to a perfection, you know? Yeah, he sure did. And Man, when, when he hits that high note at the end, Nub, I mean, it's chills. And and I'm, you know, 41 years old and been listening to this song for 35 years and God knows how many times. And every time I hear it, it's just a spectacular uh, vocal performance there at the very end. And we cover this song. We play this at our acoustic deals. And and one of the things, one of the things that always frustrated me just a little bit is you know, the, 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 could it be magic Mandy, you know, sort of combo that he always does live is fantastic. Um, but I love just Mandy, the song, the three minute song that, you know, gets through the middle, gets to the end, rings out the high note, plays out the outro. And, and when we play it, we play it that way in its original form. I, I found a few live versions where Barry, you know, played it close to normal 
still had some tweaks to it, but man, this song in its original form is just a unbelievably good arrangement and just a timeless classic. I honestly, I don't hold it up as high as weekend in new England, trying to get the feeling, you know, some of these, could it be magic to me? I, those edge out Mandy a little bit might have something to do with how much Mandy, you know, was played just the presence of it for us growing up. We, we heard it a lot. I, I appreciate it so very much. I love playing our cover version of it. You, you put together a very clever acoustic kind of version of it, but yeah, it's not, it's not like the list topper for me. There's, there's other Mandalo formula songs that, that do it for me more than Mandy does. Do I smell a top five? <laughs> Boy, that would be, it, it'd be obviously totally on the fly if we did it. And, Come uh, on, let's do the top five. Let's do it. You ready? You want, yeah. you want to throw one down? Okay. Yeah, let's do it. Well, why don't you start us off, buddy? Let's, uh, let's get your first uh, pick on the Barry top five. What do you got, Num? So number five, I'm going to go with trying to get the feeling. The title track off my favorite Manilow album. Again, it's got the formula. It's got the build. That last chorus, very, very strong. And, and, and again, it's all about the chorus with Barry and what gets you there. So that's going to be number five for me, T, is trying to get the feeling. What, what do you got for number five? Mine will be Mandy. So obviously, I think we know from what you just said, it's probably not going to be on yours, but it is in mine. And uh, it'll be quick and easy since we just uh, dove into it a bit. What is your number four? I'm going to go weekend in New England. It starts so meek, so beautiful. And then that middle section into the last chorus. When he does the, you know, so are things so bad or whatever he's saying, I don't know, I'm not a lyric guy, but when he holds that note and then it goes into the last super dramatic chorus and then the outro for that, I just, I love weekend in New England. That, that's again, one of those songs that never gets old. Great David Copperfield routine. Uh, I don't know if you ever caught this uh, on YouTube or whatever, but he used to have a bit, well, I guess it was a, ma- a magic, what do you call it? A trick yeah. in comedy. You call it a bit, I guess you call it a trick. Anyway, he would come out and do this trick and it was this, uh, I don't remember the exact thing. It involved a lady, you know, that's all I remember. I don't know, maybe cuts her in half and puts her back together. I don't know something, but anyway, he does it while weekend in new England plays. It's just a, it's a pretty awesome, like eighties magic with Barry providing the soundtrack type thing there. My next one is somewhere down the road, which we breathed on a little bit earlier during the game, but uh, this is a top five Barry song for me easily. Um, I, I love it. it. It's the Barry formula, but it's, you know, a little bit more modern. This was from the, if I should love again record, which was in the early eighties. So you were starting to transition to kind of the eighties Barry era, but I, uh, I love somewhere down the road. I think it's a, a fantastic song. What is your third choice? That's an excellent choice, by the way, somewhere down the road, uh, that, that would easily be top 10 for me. And, uh, I- again, that song has quite a bit of emotional power to it for sure. And Barry delivers, you know, an incredible vocal. Number three for me is why don't we live together? The studio version. Off, uh, trying to get the feeling nice yeah yeah sure it's got the barry manilow live version which i think is the second song on the uh yep on that set right writers to the stars right into why don't we live together yep the live version's fine but the studio version is excellent yeah you know, again the instrumentation the middle section you know that kind of that high shaft guitar you know we've done before you know it's just 
it's like the composition is just so good, you know, and it might have something to do with just its spot on really a flawless album. When you think about the trying to get the feeling again, album, that's number three for me. T what's your three. I'm going with a Jim Steinman song that Barry performed brilliantly, which is read them and weep. Uh, you know, this is uh mid eighties, maybe even later eighties type era for, for Barry. I remember there was a music video for this one, uh, which I think it may have been on MTV. It was certainly on VH1 um, where he's the clown performer and all that stuff is kind of, kind of creepy, but, but amazing. Cause it's Barry. It's just rad, you know, cause it's him and cause he's got a music video. I mean, come on, but I think read him and weep is a, a, an outstanding recording. And, you know, listen, Jim Steinman knew, knew how to put together dramatic pieces and, and, and selecting Barry to perform this, I think was really smart. And he delivers just an unbelievable vocal, um, particularly during those outro sections that kind of take you to the, the quiet bit at the end, but I love read him and weep. So that's my uh, third choice. All right. Just so we don't double up. I'm just going to say read him and weep is, is so clearly my number one that I'm not going to repeat that when we get to it, <laughs> Okay, but okay. It, it's it, it beyond my number one. It's, it's top 25 song for me from any artist of, of all time. So I think you nailed it very well. Barry and Jim Steinman, that, that makes one hell of a combination. I would have loved to see more of that, you know, through the years, it would have been cool, but uh, yeah, that's going to be my number one overall, but I'm not going to include it in the list because why should we double up, you know? So (laughs) in that sense, for my number two, I'm going to go with beautiful music. Mm. Again, the, the closing track, I'm trying to get the feeling. Sure. And the full version and so much of it is, you know, that, the middle do, 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 Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, let's not forget lady flash because sure. lady flash is a huge part of the Manilow sound. And you really hear the ladies on that one. And, you know, I, it's one of, it's a rare song where I actually really like the lyrics, you know, the lyrics kind of speak to me a little bit, but I think mm-hmm. it has everything to do with how they mix with the music, but, it's this whole declaration of just Barry's like love for music, you know, and like, yeah, yeah. And that's kind of inspiring to me, but it's, it's a little bit epic, you know, it's got that, that breakdown in the middle and then it picks back up and that'll always be a standout for me. So all right, what what is your numeral dose? I'm going to go with somewhere in the night, which uh, is a really spectacular composition. Uh, It's, it's pretty non-traditional, you know, the way it builds, It doesn't have kind of the chorus hook like you typically hear, and it sort of has the Mandalow formula, but it's more of a sort of just ramp, you know, rather than something that kind of takes you through the different kind of ebbs and flows. It just builds and builds and builds, and obviously that climactic uh, high note at the end is fantastic, and I, I just love Somewhere in the Night. So, Nub, what is your finale? So with you know with considering the read them and weep rule that we put in my number one is could it be magic, you yeah. know opening with the Chopin piece, and just really beautifully weaving into the the main verse and melody of the song. I think that's what's cool about it is the way that he transitioned from this classical bit that he lifted into the verse and the string arrangement, the build, and just the the final chorus. You know where Barry's just letting everybody have it. It's the perfect formula song for him and, and uh, is important to me. I know he wasn't the only uh, songwriter on it, but. Uh, well, whoever owns Chopin's, uh, you know, catalog, 
made a made a little bit of coin on that one because obviously he <laughs> he got a co-writing credit there. But uh, mine is could it be magic? So I'll, I'll utilize your rule and you know keep it pretty tight. But it's a it's a spectacular song. It's an absolutely spectacular song in the studio and live and in every you know different way that it was. Um, performed and executed. Let me give you a couple of my honorable mentions, Nub. I got uh, In Search of Love, which is off of that, uh, you, you've touched on it earlier, that self-titled synthesizer album from the uh, uh, late mid-80s, maybe late later 80s. Great record. And uh, I got two from that, In Search of Love and He Doesn't Care But I Do. I mean, those are great jams. Great jams. I love when they gave Barry the synthesizer stuff. You know, I'd speaking of that album too, on my honorable mention, it would probably be, it's a long way up. Oh, great. The, the closer, yeah, the closer on that album. Yeah, it's a, I love it's, that song. it's a great song. That's a really nice album. It really is. I mean, it's got a couple clunkers on there, but you know, it was Barry in kind of a different direction and they were doing the pop thing and they gave him some synth. And I mean, I love that stuff. Uh, I love his version of let's hang on off of if I should love again. I, I think, I think his treatment of let's hang on is fantastic. And then I put weekend in new England in there as well. Cause that just needs to be somewhere. So the only thing I would add to your honorable mentions with an honorable mention for me would be riders to the stars. Yeah. Yeah. The opener on Barry Manilow live. But again, the, the studio version, uh, it's got a nice, again, you're, you're thinking like almost pre-disco here, but, uh, but very Barry and nice when he can do something that's really optimistic and, and really that, that was a perfect show opener for him for sure. Really was. Well, we better get back to the album or we're just going to get on a Barry tangent and we're going to end up with like 35 honorable mentions. So let's get to track four. This is one that he wrote with Marty Panzer, who is a longtime songwriting and lyricist collaborator for him. This is called The Two of Us. We made a home that we could always share. Now, Marty Panzer wrote lyrics for It's a Miracle, which we'll get to in a bit. Even now, this one's for you. So, you know, these two really had a nice collaboration. This is a bit more of a solemn Barry tune. There's no drums. Um, but does have some of those nice bells kind of happening in the background. It's, it's a nice little berry track for after you come out pretty hot with that trio to kick off side A. I miss the instrumentation. You know, I, I'm not a big fan of when Barry goes super minimal. I like when he starts minimal and then builds and runs the formula. But yeah, it, it, it gets a little dull when he doesn't bring in the instrumentation. The bell thing is cool, but Barry needs drums. You know, he needs drums and he needs the guitar is doing something and, you know, strong bass lines. And it just, he, he, he always surrounded himself with so many skilled and talented musicians. It's kind of a bummer sometimes when he just goes totally solo and does things in a minimal way. We wrap up side A with something's coming up. Nubs, what is noteworthy and unique about something's coming up? I do not know. Oh, really? <laughs> no, I no, I, I, I finally stumped you. Well, Barry wrote the words and lyrics all by himself, and that didn't happen very often. You know, it was a pretty rare thing. But here on, you know, to close up the first side of Barry Manilow 2, words and music to something's coming up. 
uh, by Barry Manilow. I, I think it's a cool little jam, you know, a good little way to wrap up the side. And, you know, obviously I think they knew that they had a heater to kick off side two, but what do you think of the way it, it wraps up with this full on Barry composition here, Nub? I like it. And I'm not surprised to hear that because I, I think part of the reason he did eventually start working with songwriters was he did need some help completing his thoughts, you know, musically. You kind of get a little bit of that open-ended thing here. It really is headed somewhere, but it never really gets there. And you get the feeling that Adrian Anderson and like some of these songwriters that he worked with just helped him complete his thoughts by bringing in a new element, again, of the drama. You know, and, and that's really what separates the outstanding Manilow from the good. And this is good. This, it's got the nice groove, the instrumentation, the musicianship. It, it's all there. But the thought doesn't complete and it doesn't contain the drama that you do see in other elements of his catalog. And, and like on Mandy, I mean, what, what separates Mandy from the rest of this album is that element of just drama. You know, the, the, the cinematic aspect of that song, the rise and the fall and the rise. And when you don't get that, you know, something's missing. And I, I do think songs like this is probably where Clive Davis said, hey, dude, you're pretty talented, but you might want to work with some people to help you, uh, you know, complete your thoughts. Uh, in terms of your songwriting. Well, as you often say, Nub, we flip the record over, spin it around and begin side B. And I bet people thought pretty quickly that they were getting, in addition to Mandy, the other song that really defined Barry Manilow too and made it the hit that it was. And that is track six. It's a miracle. I mean, what a, you know, tremendous, it didn't make either of our top fives, but a tremendous favorite, you know, from longtime Barry fans. So those voices you hear, you think it's Lady Flash, but not quite yet. They actually didn't join the band until the next recording, the trying to get the feeling record. And obviously they would then proceed to be with Barry for decades. You know, that's Deborah Bird and, and the ladies there who are always, uh, at Barry's side and providing those all important female vocals. Um, so good performances here, even though it's not lady flash. And obviously this was a, this was a live favorite. It always seemed like Barry even loved playing it live. And, you know, a guy always got everybody, uh, always got everybody up out of their seats and all that good stuff that you experience at a Barry show. So where does it's a miracle rank for you, nub on your kind of overall Barry sphere? It'd be number one in terms of the amount of bad white people dancing that would happen <laughs> at the shows. <laughs> this song took the cake because you're right. Everyone get up and start boogieing. And it was, uh, there, there were some interesting moves at a Barry show. Yeah. yeah a lot, of, a lot of overbites going on there. Certainly. Yeah, totally. Totally. Hey, let me ask you this. I just think about this when you're talking about lady flash. Now, who would you rather party with? Right. You got one opportunity to party with these two groups of ladies. Lady Flash or the Pointer Sisters? Who would you rather party with? It's a great question. I bet, I bet both groups uh, know how to have a good time. Sometimes the Pointer Sisters were just just a little too aggressive for me. And, <laughs> you know, I feel like they like you know big, big, strong men. You know, big, big, muscled up guys. You know, maybe. I don't know, maybe all greased up and just got, just got done at the gym. And, you know, I, I think that the pointer sisters were kind of into that, you know, that really yeah. man's man, you know, the, 
kind of go home and fix something, get, you know, get the tools out and fix something, right? The man with the slow hand, if you will. Yeah. And, and and, uh, lady flash, maybe they'd be okay with kind of a, you know, a scrawny guy who, you know, maybe uh, can, can play music and maybe play uh, some sports or something, but you know, maybe isn't quite as, I just think them, I just think those pointer sisters, I just think those ladies are just crazy, you know? And uh, I just kind of feel like maybe I'm not, up to their standards. So I, I'd have to go maybe with Lady Flash on that. Plus, I think they're better singers. That's a good take. That's a good take. Who would you go with? I mean, it's a great question. I think I'd have to go with the Pointer Sisters just because I think there's uh I think there's a lot they could show me. They'd beat the shit out of you, Nub. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I would be a rag doll. You yeah. <laughs> you would have no chance against those ladies. No chance. They really know how to party, those pointer sisters, you know. <laughs> I think I'd go with them. All right, we got a couple covers here as uh, side two goes on. This is one that is on the Barry Manilow Live record and kind of became a live uh, favorite for Barry in Avenue C. It's an old uh, Count Basie uh, cover that they sort of attach some lyrics to and you know, Barry's love for jazz and swing and those type of things. I think, uh, you know, I think that was pretty important. It obviously influenced, uh, a lot of, uh, his music and sort of the, a lot of the kind of diverse offerings that he often composed. And, you know, it's kind of cool to have this on the album since it was part of the live collection and, and part of, uh, something that he always liked to perform live. I'm sure it was not Clive Davis's favorite, uh, addition to the album, but you know, <laughs> Clearly there was a good enough relationship there where Barry got to, uh, Barry won this argument. Apparently, you know, it's, it's a little bit of a throwaway track album wise, but it's nice to see Barry be able to celebrate the things that he's into. He's always been kind of a show tunes guy and jazz and, you know, swing and things like that. He made a swing album, I think, you know, later in his career. You think maybe he bartered that one? Like he kind of said, okay, I'll do the Mandy thing. If, if, if you let me do the count Basie and they said deal. Yeah, yeah, and if so, then uh, Arista still won that deal for sure, <laughs> no doubt, no question. This is a Martha and the Vandellas cover called "My Baby Loves Me." Now, the one thing about this track is, you know, apparently this did, and you can hear it a little bit, but. This did kind of give he and some of the other composers and producers involved some of the inspiration for proceeding to perform uh, Can't Smile Without You and Daybreak Um, because they both kind of have that similar style. So apparently his affinity for uh, My Baby Loves Me, which definitely has a similar groove and approach, helped lead to the eventual recording of those two classic Manilow tracks. Yeah, it sounds a hell of a lot like Daybreak for sure pretty much just pulled the groove from this. And this is where Barry loses me a little bit. You know, there's, there's just so many out there who do this sort of thing better with a little more soul. And, you know, it's, I like that he touches all sorts of different genres and as a true entertainer, a born entertainer, he tries all sorts of different things, but it, it sounds very rigid. I think when Barry tries to do anything that is a little bit more along the R and B lines. It's just not his strength. You know, yeah. Yeah. his strength was more of a, 
almost more of like a European type of sound, you know, something that's, that's more rooted in just sort of the, the melody, almost Beatlesque sort of like drama to the sound, not, not something with a lot of soul or R&B aspects in it. So I, I think it fails a little bit here. And he, and he tended to dabble with this from time to time on his other remaining albums. And it usually resulted for me in, in just kind of a, you know, a, a dufferoo kind of go to the next track sort of thing. But this was also the era of album tracks. You know, he, he was not making concept albums here now. Like he's this, it was not an interest to him necessarily to create this perfect top to bottom two-sided album. He was in the world of hit singles. And so the fact that this album had two hit singles on it made it a success. And that meant that the rest of the album could pretty much accomplish whatever things artistically he wanted to accomplish. And this sort of represents that. It's kind of the one thing you always wish you would have seen Barry do is something that was a little bit more conceptual from an album standpoint. Now, Paradise Cafe was probably the closest thing that got to it, but you know, that was still kind of in an era where they were still pretty focused on commercialism and those type of things. And by that point, you know, he had so much songwriting support. It would have been kind of interesting to see him kind of come up with an original record that had either kind of a musical thematic and concept or even a story arc type concept. I think Barry would have been very good at that. He never seemed to want to do it. You know, when it came down to it, he'd do a record of covers or a record of, you know, swing favorites or uh, songs about New York or you know whatever it might be which oftentimes he's paying nice tribute and those sorts of things. But it's the one thing I kind of wish we would have seen out of Barry's career. You know, he actually did it to, but it was later. It was like in the two thousands, he did an album called here at the Mayflower and it, it, it's a true concept album. I mean, it, it tells this story about, I think it's like about an apartment complex. I remember he did some press for it. That's the only reason I remember this. And there was a single off it. I think it was called turn the radio up. That was, you know, it was okay. But so he did it, but not in his heyday, you know, to your point, yeah. Yeah. It would have been nice to see him do that when he really had his his chops and his commercial presence because he could have created something, you know, really dynamic in terms of his creativity. So and that also was like very theatrical. That was, that was almost like a stage play. Yeah. Yeah. Audio. Yeah. And I, I don't know that I wanted him to go that far, but but something that, you know, to your point, wasn't a collection of singles, but was something that had some sort of uh, collective nature to it. Cause you really never got that from Barry as far as any of the albums are concerned, but let's uh, wrap it up here. We got track nine. This is called Sandra. What is this Toto? We got albums with, you know, more than one female name. Yeah, chicks names. Yeah, exactly. Jeez, come on. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, this this is the song that I think reminds you you're in 1974, right? I mean, this kind of storytelling element of it, uh, you know, it's almost like uh, kind of what we talked about a little bit with Rupert Holmes, where sometimes that could get a little gimmicky. I think Sandra's okay. Um, there are moments of it that are kind of cool, but it's almost one of those where the storytelling kind of overshadows what's being done musically. And, you know, maybe it's because we're not always lyric guys or maybe because it's a little melodramatic, but, you know, it's kind of one of those where um, sometimes I, I think during this era and Barry wasn't the only one, 
you'd get so fixated on the story that you'd kind of let your foot off the gas a little bit with the music and the arrangement and the production and the execution. And you come up with something that's fairly flat, but I do think the record closes very nicely with the finale track 10. This is called home again. This is yet another Marty Panzer collaboration. That's a pretty sweet little guitar solo that uh, we heard there coming out of the middle. And it's a really nice outro with you know, kind of those easy sort of tickling of the keys from uh, Barry with those strings. And it's very sweeping and very nice. And boy, Barry just sings the hell out of it. I, I really like the closer. I think Home Again's a nice way to wrap it up. Nubs, thoughts? Yeah, it's an ideal closer, but you nailed it. it. His vocal performance here might be the best on the album. It, certainly Mandy is special, but you know, you really hear the true depths of his voice. Guy's a great singer, you know, along with all the aspects of Barry that are really important as a musician. He, he really has a tremendous voice and he can do a lot of different things vocally. And, and here you kind of see the full range. So yeah, I think it's an ideal closer for a second half of the album. That's pretty weak. I, I think it's, it brings it to a nice close and sort of bookends the thing very, very well. I think, you know, of all the things and the ups and downs on, on this record, I think that the the sequence is boosted by the fact that it closes with a, you know, a really memorable song. So no, Barry Manilow too. Did it matter? What do you think? It's got Mandy on it. Uh, important album in his career. So for those of us that are fanalos, whether you want to admit it or not, most human beings, I think deep down really are. And so, you know, it, it, it launched his career after a first album flop. You mentioned kind of the unconventional path that he was on. So two is a, it's a really important album for him. No doubt about it. Um, it's very imperfect. It's very uneven. It's got a strong first half. It's a miracle would set up what you would think would be a, side two of the record that would just be, you know, explosive and, and it's not, it sort of dwindles uh, right there in the middle of, of side two. So it, it's not Barry's best album. It's not his biggest commercial success, but it's got Mandy on it. And it is a huge, huge moment in his career. And for an artist who's been doing what he's been doing for five decades, six decades, like, I don't know what the count is at, but it's, you know, it, it's pretty remarkable what he's been able to do. And clearly it's an important album for him. So, hey, what's important to Barry is important to me. So <laughs> what do you think, T, does, does two matter? It mattered a lot in, in, in the career of Barry Manilow. If, if two didn't happen and if two didn't execute, he may have been screwed um, because his first album did not do what they wanted it to do. And, you know, the, the way Clive Davis really kind of saw the potential in him and knew you know, a little bit about formulaically and, and, and content wise, what they needed to arm Barry with for him to come up with a winner. I, I, it seems like on the second record, everything sort of pulled together and everybody was just a step better than they were on the previous one. But like I said, from the onset, this really turned the debut 
into uh, a classic as well. And obviously, you know, between Could It Be Magic and uh, Cloudburst and a few other songs, I mean, that's become, a, that's become a, a very beloved record for him. So it's an interesting story in that this one really kind of boosted what came before it and jump-started this, you know, wonderful career, you know, from this wonderful artist. So certainly mattered. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know that it's going to be the type of album that, you know, gets deemed a classic, but I think that anyone who pays any attention to the catalog of Barry Manilow is certainly going to look at, you know, try and get the feeling and, and other records that followed. Certainly the live album is a staple in any collection, but most people that really do dig in and, and understand, or at least care to understand the trajectory of Barry's career will pay their respect to, uh, to this sophomore album, which really truly jump-started this multi-decade, half-a-century career from the great Barry Manilow. All right, Nub, the final cut. Where do you got Barry Manilow 2? Is it on the turntable? Is it in the collection? Is it collecting dust? Or much like R.E.M.'s Green, are you putting this one in the old for sale bin? Where do you got it, Nub? Well, just just to make clear, we're rounding kind of the end of the show. So if we're going to follow the Barry Manilow formula right now, we should have a key change. So <laughs> we've been we've been in B flat. So I just want to make sure right now we're going to go into E flat. Yeah, okay, no so problem. Yeah, we'll key good, change right now. Good so call. Let's, let's do that because we're going to follow the formula. Got to execute the formula. Absolutely. Exactly. So with all that said, you know, there's reasons to put this in the for sale bin. It's uneven. The second half is weak. Uh, th- there's some genres and things on here that Barry explores that turn into very forgettable tunes, but it's got Mandy on it. It's got It's a Miracle on it. The opening two tracks are rock solid and shows where Barry was going. It's a very, very important album to his life as a musician. So there's reasons to put it in the for sale bin, but there's also many reasons to keep it in your collection, but it is collecting dust for me. It's there. Uh, you know, you can't take it to the for sale bin. It's got, you know, it's got really important stuff on it, but, um, but it's collecting dust just because from an album top to bottom, Barry does have better. Now, again, he never created that perfect album. He really didn't, you know, in my opinion, trying to get the feeling is closest and it's, it's fantastic. Even there, there's a couple moments that you really wish weren't on there. So it wasn't his thing to create masterpiece albums. But um, the importance of two is there. So it's collecting dust for me, too. All right. What's your final cut? What do you got? Yeah, it's collecting dust for me as well. And, I, you know, I don't know if Barry made an album that goes on the turntable. I really don't. And, and I still think his catalog is important and it's still fun to revisit. And it was fun as hell to talk through this. And every album represents, you know, kind of a different step in kind of the overall, even though there was the formula, there was still an evolution to his career. And as you got to the later part of the seventies and the early part of the eighties, and we talked about the synthesizer self-titled record. I mean, there are fun things to experience when you go through the catalog, but I don't know that he put out that definitive album, right? I mean, you know, there were certainly some other records we could have chosen. There are other records that were more loaded with singles, but from a pure album standpoint, I'm not sure that there's one that would go on the turntable. I do think, uh, you know, this and some others should be in the collection, but for me, it would also be collecting dust. I wouldn't think of putting this in the uh, for sale bin just because of the high points, you know, the, and it starts off really good. I mean, that first trio of tunes is strong. 
I like the way it closes. And obviously you got a classic with it's a, it's a miracle in the middle. So it's not a for sale bin by any means, but, uh, but it's a dust collector for me as well, nub. And, um, but I do think it's, uh, as we both noted, if you're into the catalog and discography of Barry Manilow two is extremely important. And I think we both agreed on that one. All right, buddy. Let's see what uh, Dolores has in store for us now as we, we looked at albums that make you happy earlier, Nubs. What songs have been making you happy as we go? What do you got, bud? One of the best driving songs ever made, which is Ride Like the Wind by Christopher Cross. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. The sun is starting to pop out here. The driving songs are coming back. You can roll your windows down ride like the wind you gotta love it you've gotta love it and one of the great was it the sctv skits where yeah. just to bring the show full circle where rick moranis plays michael mcdonald and he's driving around and he he does the quick background vocals and he goes and does something else it's like the hardest working man in show business skit such a long way to go <laughs> yeah exactly oh, yeah great or if it's philip bailey be such a long way to go yeah. <laughs> we switched we, we switched. swapped we yeah. switched exactly so yeah, Ride Like the Wind, Christopher Cross, great stuff. Uh, second would be, you know, my favorite Weezer album is Pinkerton and the song Get You. Just sort of one of the, you know, kind of more, you know, rocking songs off of Pinkerton. So Get You by Weezer. And then lastly, uh, off Journey's Next, which is my favorite Journey album, the song I Would Find You. I think it's track three. It's actually the one that Neil Sean sings it, but his vocals sound just like Greg Raleigh's, just like it. And it's sort of a slow, draggy, proggy sort of deal there. So I would find you by the original pre-Steve Perry journey. All right, T, what, uh, what is in your head? The first is a Peter Murphy jam. And it's something that I heard. I, I love First Wave, the, you know, Sirius XM station that plays kind of the, uh, you know, early, mid-80s uh, new wave and you know, a lot of that Brit pop stuff. It's a, it's a nice station and cuts you up is a Peter Murphy jam that I've heard and was like, Oh yeah, that one's really good. The second is uh, a song by this band called the Beatles. Not sure if you ever heard of them. They were pretty good. Check them out. If you haven't while my guitar gently weeps, you know, just a decent little George Harrison song. And the third, you, you pulled out Jason Beeler. I'm going to pull out Saigon kick and go with a little track off the lizard called all I want. Nub, you know, I know you were skeptical on the album pick. Uh, do you still like me? I never lost faith in you, my good man. All right. It turned never. out okay. Yeah, it was great. I love talking Barry. I love talking <laughs> Barry. That was a good choice, man. Well, I sure enjoyed it and I sure appreciate it. And uh, an artist that is, uh, it has been and always will be special in our hearts. So that is a wrap on episode 37. And we will be back, whether you like it or not, baby, with episode 3-8 here on your favorite album review podcast of all time. At least we think so. Here on Two Twins and an album. Take care. Two Twins and an album. Well, that's about it. That's all we have. I hope it wasn't too disappointing. We will see you on tour. Until then, take it easy.